morning. It is great to see you. Thanks for being here on Easter Sunday with us. I hope you feel welcome however you come into this place this morning. I realize some of you are members of our church. Others of you are regular attenders for some time. Maybe you're a recent guest or this is your first time ever with us because it's Easter or you're with family and we're really glad you're here. hope you feel welcome to be a part of our community It's Easter Sunday, and maybe you're like me, you're excited to worship a resurrected Jesus, or you could be here and you're wondering why all this excitement and hype and hoopla around Easter. I can't help but think of some of you who are here and you're still questioning Jesus, wrestling with Christianity, and Easter for you has been a fun holiday, a time you spend with family, with friends, over some food, maybe an Easter egg hunt, some candy. And you wonder why all this hype around Easter. Someone recently told me about a blog post of a woman who grew up Hindu and then she started studying the Baha'i faith and then she started looking into Christianity. And I want to read some of her blog to you. It's a fairly lengthy blog, but listen to what she writes. Quote, well, so there I was studying along when I hit on just one event that could not be explained away by Baha'i cleverness, the resurrection. Here at last was the only and most effective measuring stick of truth to sort through the claims of religion's unity. Christians claimed that Jesus was God, was the son of God, and all this stuff about a trinity, which really I had no idea what they were talking about. They claimed this resurrection, which made no sense to me. Not that I didn't believe Jesus couldn't rise from the dead if he were God, but I had no idea what possible relevance this could have. Since I didn't know and understand about the fall, sin, the final resurrection, I assumed these were all myths with no more relevant deep meaning than a fairy tale, except maybe spiritual, metaphorical spiritual meanings. I wasn't even interested because I never understood what importance that event should have to me. No Christian had ever explained that to me. They just said crazy stuff like, I've been washed in the blood of the lamb and now I'm saved. Jesus died for your sins, don't you want to be saved? Then they paint portraits of hell and it all made zero sense to me. Just as though someone said, my red balloon popped and then candy canes fell out of the sky. Your rabbit is winking at me. Doesn't all this make you want to buy a new Nissan? I'm not exaggerating, she wrote. This nutshell gospel message makes absolutely no sense to a non-Christian. No real meaningful sense anyway. You just have no idea what they're so excited about. So Jesus rose from the dead, big whoop. So what? good for him. So what? End quote. Today is Easter Sunday, the day when the Christian church celebrates the resurrection of Christ. What I want to address this morning is, so what? Big whoop, so what for us? So I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. This is God's word to us this morning. Paul writes, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah says, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you're with us this morning. And I pray that you would take the scriptures that were spirit-inspired and written And you would apply it to our spirits, that our minds would be illumined, our hearts inflamed, our lives changed. Because you, the resurrected Christ, have spoken to us and met with us this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Bless this time we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Well, let me start by asking you a question. If you are a Christian, why are you a Christian? Why are you a Christian? Why would anyone want to be a Christian? If you lived in Syria or Iraq or Indonesia, would you want to be a Christian? For a long time, people have said that the United States was a Christian nation. And what they meant is that Christianity lined up with their political view. So perhaps you grew up hearing experiences, and so being a Christian means lining up somewhere politically, and and you think, no, thank you, not for me. Maybe you've heard that Christianity holds to an exclusive truth claim of Jesus being the only way of salvation, and and you think that's just too narrow. No, thank you. It could be more personal for you. Maybe you've been hurt by someone who claimed to be a Christian, even a parent who read the Bible faithfully, but they're the angriest person you've ever known. Or someone who was in authority over you, who faithfully served and gave in the church, but They abused you in some way. Why would you want to be a Christian? Why be a Christian? Francis Schaeffer was a theologian, a Presbyterian pastor who died in the 1980s. And Schaeffer one day decided that he didn't want to be a Christian. He was deeply discouraged. He interacted with many clergy. And they all proclaimed that God was a God of grace and a God of kindness. Yet many of them were so self-righteous and critical. So he abandoned his faith. And so he decided to study world religions, differing philosophies, and at the same time, he read the Bible from cover to cover. And he got all the way through his studies, and he concluded, I'm a Christian. Now, why did Francis Schaeffer say, I'm a Christian? Schaeffer said, I'm a Christian because it's true. Because it's true. This is the one reason to be a Christian. It's true. Don't be a Christian because your parents are Christians. 
Don't be a Christian because culturally it's easier to be a Christian. Don't be a Christian because you're afraid of death. Don't be a Christian because when life gets hard, Christianity can bail you out or help you feel better in some way. The one reason to be a Christian is that it's true. This morning we affirm the truth of Jesus' resurrection. As Christians, we believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead. And the truth of this claim is the linchpin of Christianity. Everything hinges on whether Jesus rose from the dead or not. I love what British theologian N.T. Wright said. He said, take Christmas away, and in biblical terms, you lose two chapters at the front of Matthew and Luke's gospel, nothing else. You take Easter away, and you don't have a New Testament. You don't have a Christianity. So what's all this hype about Easter? Jesus rose from the dead. So what? Big whoop. Paul writes this letter, 1 Corinthians, to the church in Corinth in the first century. Corinth was a big port city, affluent, multi-ethnic. It was a city formed by paganism, not by biblical religion, didn't hold to biblical values. And here in chapter 15, the apostle Paul reflects on the resurrection of Jesus and its importance. We're going to look at three things this morning. That the resurrection is important because it's about news, it's about a grammatical construct, and it's about an image. News, grammatical construct, and image. Let's look first at news. See this in verses 1 through 10. Paul writes in verse 1, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you which you received. The gospel That word's thrown around a lot today, and churches talk about the gospel. We share the gospel. Churches are gospel-centered. What what does gospel literally mean? Good news. Some of you know that. It means good news. But not good news like the forecast tomorrow is 70 degrees and clear skies and sunny, or good news like the Masters golf tournament's going to be replayed this week, and we get to watch it all over again, and that would be good news for me. That's good news. That's pleasant news. But the gospel is epic news. It's earth-shattering news. Change your life. Change the world news. There was a king born in a manger who lived a humble life as a carpenter, was perfectly obedient to everything his father asked and desired of him, was executed on a cross for the sins and the redemption of the world and then rose from the dead as king over death and sin. This gospel is epic news. How do we know it's true? Paul writes in verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the 12, then to the 500, to James, and then to Paul. There were eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. Jesus' resurrection is a public claim placed in a public letter, 1 Corinthians, that was read in public to the church in Corinth. That's how we know it's true. This epic news also changed the very life of Paul. That's how we know it's true. He was Saul, verse 9, a persecutor of the church, but by God's grace was gifted the eyes and the heart of faith to believe in the truth of Jesus as King and Savior, and it changed his life. So Paul writes in verse 10, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So the good news of Easter is that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
saves our lives, heals us from our sin, reconciles us to God, brings us into the family and kingdom of God. Jesus accomplishes that which we cannot. Jesus is not simply a good teacher or a moral exemplar. He is a savior. This is the gospel of grace. It's true. Believing it will change your life. John Ortberg tells the story of a husband and a wife driving down the road and they pull off at a gas station. The husband was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and so they pull off at this gas station. His wife goes in and he sees his wife talking to the gas station attendant. He's like, hmm, that's interesting. She gets back in the car and he asks, what was that all about? She said, well, I realized I recognized him. We actually went to high school together and I dated him. And there was silence for a little bit and the man said, well, I know what you're thinking. Thank God I married the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. And she said, no, 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 that's not what I was thinking. I was actually thinking if I'd married him, he would have been the CEO of a Fortune 500 company and you would have been the gas station attendant. <laughs> See, Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. We don't make our lives what they are. God makes them what he wants them by his grace. He is the one who changes our lives. The power of the resurrection is the power of God to change our life. Through it and by belief in it, God says you're forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. You are my child. You're loved. You're secured forever and ever and ever. The gospel is earth-shattering news. Has it changed your life? Maybe you struggle to believe it. Maybe you've gone to church for most of your life, but... You don't know God in this way where it's radically transformed you or, or maybe you believe but you feel numb towards God. Has the gospel shaken your heart? It is the news of the truth of Jesus that changes our lives if we believe it. The second thing we see about Easter, it's about a grammatical construct. Look at verses 12 through 19. This point will be short. But Paul, who was Saul, was from Tarsus. Tarsus it would be like Cambridge or Oxford or for some of you Ivy League people, Princeton or New Haven or Auburn, Alabama, <laughs> for others of you. Yes. The point, Paul had a world-class education. Right? Paul was a great thinker. Great thinker. He's writing to a city and people that had zero interest in Jesus or the resurrection. And what he does is he uses formal logic, a grammatical construct, three if-then statements, three conditional statements, if, then, if, then, if, then. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Pastor Brian Habig summed it up this way. If dead people stay dead, Jesus is still dead. If Jesus is still dead, Jesus is a hoax. And if Jesus is a hoax, we are pitiful. We are pitiful. Hear me. Uh, uh, Habig also said uh, that in Paul doing this, he, what he's kind of doing, he's pulling out of the text and speaking directly to his audience. If you've ever seen a TV show or a movie where an actor's in the midst of a scene and then they pull out and face the camera and, and uh, directly address the audience, uh, like Kevin Spacey does in House of Cards or 
You know, Ferris Bueller, maybe you've seen a show like that. Habakkuk said that's what Paul is doing here in 1 Corinthians 15. And he pulls out and he's directly addressing us, the audience, the readers. And Paul is saying, what if this isn't true? You ever thought that this whole thing might be a hoax? That if dead people stay dead, if, if the main character Jesus is still dead, if all of this is a hoax, we're pitiful. Hear me, if the resurrection is not true, then what are we doing? We might as well do whatever we want, determine whatever we think makes us the happiest in this life and do it because this whole Christianity thing is just a sham. But if we do believe it's true, and I'm saying we do, the hope of Easter is that Jesus actually rose from the dead. It is the linchpin of our faith and of our very lives. The last thing we see about Easter is that it's about an image. See this in verse 20. This is a very important image that Paul uses to describe the resurrection. In verse 20, Paul writes, but in fact, Paul's saying this isn't fiction, this is fact, this is true. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The image used of the resurrection is first fruits. Now, many of us don't know what that means because uh, we weren't born or lived in, in an agricultural society. But what it means is that when Jews would celebrate festival of Passover and the festival of Pentecost, they would present their first crop or their first fruit before the Lord. And what the first fruit communicated was not their pledge to God, but God's promise to them. It was God reminding them that he will do what he said he would do that he will bring salvation and usher in his kingdom. First fruit was God's promise made visible to his people. In Stephen Covey's now old book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Covey writes about an experience with his 12-year-old daughter, Cynthia. She traveled with him on a trip to San Francisco where he was going to speak, and they had agreed that after the speech, he would come immediately to her, find her, and they would hop on a trolley and go to Chinatown and eat their favorite food, Chinese food, buy a souvenir, catch a movie, take a cab to the hotel, swim in the pool, order room service, watch a late TV show, and then fall asleep. And they rehearsed it over and over and over. And the time came, and Cubby spoke, he goes immediately to the back of the room and he finds Cynthia and they're walking out and he bumps into an old college friend and they start talking and he says, hey, my company is teaming up with your company. What if you and Cynthia join me and my wife for dinner tonight at the Fisherman's Wharf? Covey says, well, yeah, that sounds great. And Cynthia's listening in and she begins to feel discouraged. And Covey says, hey, that sounds great, but we can't do it. We have a date tonight. And he grabs Cynthia's hand and off they went. And in an interview in 2012, an older Cynthia said, when her dad did that, it bonded him to me forever. I knew I was the most important thing. When Jesus rose from the dead physically, it is God saying, I promise you that I can and will raise the dead, that the way the world works now is not the way it will always work. The resurrection is God's promise of salvation and his kingdom made visible. But first fruits was, more, was about more than just the present. It's at the heart of the Jews offering their first fruit. It was God telling them, this is the first and there is still much more to come. And Paul is applying this image to the resurrection. Jesus rising from the dead is the first thing 
and now there is a kingdom coming. We will rise with Christ in resurrection. Death is not the final word. I like how Paul talks about death here in 1 Corinthians. Those who've fallen asleep, just sleeping. Because death holds no power for those who believe in the resurrected Christ. See, the promise that comes in Jesus' resurrection is that there's more coming. We will rise with him in a physical bodily resurrection ourselves. And the physical world will be renewed. A kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. See, God's not just giving death and the effects of sin a little bit of a spanking. In the, in the cross and the resurrection, he is defeating death and sin. He is conquering death and sin. He is reversing all that is broken and making everything sad untrue. Upon the truth of the resurrection hangs our hope that there will one day, someday, be no depression, no cancer, no loneliness, no divorce, no racism, no terrorism, no churches that burn to the ground in Louisiana or in Paris. No gas explosions, no murders, no gun violence, no police brutality, no oppression, no poverty, no spousal or child abuse. There will be no pain and no suffering. The more that is still to come is a physical world with King Jesus reigning in truth, justice, beauty, peace, and love with us, his people, in a physical world. One day, all of the crap that we experience in this life will be over. The stuff that makes us angry and the stuff that breaks our heart is not true of the future. Have you ever looked at the Virginia state flag? I know some of us are proud North Carolinians, but I like the Virginia state flag. On it, there are two, there, there are two figures, one person standing on the the throat of another who's lying on the ground with the crown next to him and the motto is written, Six Semper Tyrannus, which means thus always to tyrants. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the point in which King Jesus steps on the throat of his opposition and begins to push back the power of darkness and tyranny of our world. The resurrection is the first fruits. See, despite a, a thousand Easter hymns and a million Easter sermons, the Bible never talks about the resurrection in such a way as Jesus raised from the dead, therefore our hope is to float off into heaven someday. Easter has a, a very this-worldly present age meaning. The resurrection means a new world order has ensued, and therefore those of us who follow the king have great ambition toward and for a kingdom that is coming. Here's what I'm saying. The resurrection has brought the future into the present. The future of God has landed in the present and God is working renewal right now. So if this is true, and I'm saying that it is, if you believe it, let me ask you to do something today. Give up your small ambitions. Give up your small ambitions. The church is God's beachhead for renewal in the world. It is partial now, yes, but it's real and it's lasting. So when we as Christians love with divine love, live with divine joy, when you care for others and you bring light into their lives, hatred and alienation and marginalization can be healed. It means we have ambition for a kingdom that is a kingdom of justice and mercy for all people. It means we believe in this earth-shattering news 
that by faith in Christ, there is no condemnation, but by his grace, we are made sons and daughters of a king and, part, and, and uh, believers in a kingdom that will never perish. See, the, the thing that I'm trying to drive home and asking you to give up your small ambitions is the reality that we as Christians get to participate with Jesus in his kingdom coming to earth as it is in heaven. Give up our small ambitions. The gospel of the resurrected Jesus, it's world-changing news. And there's an old ESPN 30 for 30, uh, which I love 30 for 30s uh, on ESPN. It's an older episode between Mike Tyson and Tupac Shakur. Mike Tyson, one of the greatest boxers of all time. Tupac, one of the greatest rappers of all time. In 1996, Tupac was gunned down after uh, watching a, a Tyson fight. He was killed. Some of you still believe Tupac's alive, um, but most believe he was killed. The two of them were actually supposed to meet Tyson and Shakur at, uh, after the fight. And in the episode, they interview Maya Angelou, author, poet, activist for racial equality and justice. And she talks about the first time she met Tupac. It was on the set of this film uh, that they were on together. She didn't know him, but she heard two men yelling, and then she hears this fight break out, and one of the men in the fight was Tupac. She goes and she grabs a hold of Tupac, who's raging in anger and in hate at that moment. And Maya Angelou looks him in the eyes and said, Tupac, when was the last time someone told you it was all for you? That we stood on the slave blocks for you that we were hosed down for you, that we were beaten and lynched all for you. And Tupac immediately breaks down. He starts weeping and his whole posture changed. His life changed in that moment. Listen, Jesus left heaven, was born a man, lived, died, rose from the dead for you. It was all for you. Do you believe it's true? The one reason to be a Christian is that it's true. And when you believe it, it will change your life. And you will know that Jesus is changing this world. That a king is reigning and a kingdom is coming. Let's pray. Pray that you would help us to believe and help our unbelief. Lord, give us belief in the resurrected Jesus. Who's not just given a black eye to death and sin, but has conquered it and is reversing all that is broken in our world. Lord, would you transform our lives and would you send us out of here to be participants with you to see your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.